Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Being out at work feels like negotiating a tightrope between professionalism and trying to be open and also quite honest. I'm trans. So, you know, they made a big announcement to the entire floor, which was not comfortable or great, really. And people still misgender me fairly frequently, you know, because my voice doesn't pass, apparently. Um, But I'm at least allowed to use the men's room, so that's pretty cool. It's a constant decision of whether to jokingly correct them or to make a serious statement. And to make a more serious statement really is to put yourself on your own, uh, facing lots of different people who may not quite understand. Just having this this kind of little tiny job that I think of as kind of just being a bill-paying kind of thing. It's nothing really fancy. But nonetheless, it's like I'm not going to leave the job because this is a kind of freedom that I cannot imagine having in, in other jobs. Now I have like an incredible queer support group that I would have never have found had I not started working for this company. And I'm really thankful for that. From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your host, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. Tobin. Kathy. We have a very special guest in the studio today. We do. Matt Collette, hello. Oh, I thought it was like a real guest. I was like, oh, what wow. didn't I prepare for? <laughs> <laughs> it's just Superstar me. Superstar producer Matt Collette back in the studio. Hi, Matt. Happy to be here on this side of the glass. So you may be wondering, what's this third wheel doing here? Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, we have been doing this big project called Out at Work. You may have heard about it. Mm-hmm. It is all about being queer in the workplace. And part of that has been asking for your stories. And you all have come through in a way we didn't even expect. Oh, yeah. A big thank you to all the Nancy listeners who have already shared a story. More than 1,700 responses so far, and we're still hearing from you every day. And Matt has been helping us sort through all of them. What have you noticed so far, Matt? Well, we've gotten a ton of incredibly moving stories from people all over the country and even outside the country, like folks who work at international schools or in the Peace Corps. So we asked are you out at work? And I think one surprise for me has been that it's rarely all that cut and dry. There are a lot of people who, like, want to be out but feel they can't be. And at the same time feel torn, like maybe they ought to be. And, like, one group where this tension is really playing out is teachers. While I am completely out to all of my colleagues and administrators, I generally don't say anything to my students and their parents. I just fly under the radar and pass, um, and I feel bad about that. This is an elementary school teacher near Philadelphia who says she'd really like to be out. So this year when I'm starting at a new school, I'm thinking, well, maybe this will be the year that I'll be brave. And maybe when somebody says something about my husband, I'll correct them and say my wife. Um, But I worry that it'll distract from the kids' education, that it'll make it about me or make it a big deal or that I'll even lose my job. So it is definitely a worry. I wonder all the time what it would have been like to have a teacher even just mention in passing that they had (laughs) a same-sex partner or were queer and what that would have changed for me. Totally. I would have finally had my ring of keys moment. 
your Miss Frizzle moment, if you will. Sure, sure. Get on the magic school bus, Okay, Kathy. okay. <laughs> yeah, this point exactly is something I heard from a lot of teachers. This idea that they wanted to be the role model they never had themselves. Like, this is Annie Kelly. She's a public school teacher here in New York. I made the decision very early on that I had to be as overtly open as possible because I realized how transformational it could have been for me as a teenager to see someone visibly queer in the classroom who owned that they were queer. Annie teaches social studies, and she makes it a point to really showcase queer stuff in her classroom. My big move this year was to create my queer wall. By my desk is this slew of pictures of queers through history from the ancient world to the modern world. Uh, Already so early in the year, I've had students come in and just stare at it and wonder. One student even suggested that she belonged up there herself, and it felt like an epiphany and a secret that she was sharing with me. A queer wall. I love this so much. Finally, a wall we can get behind. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. So before we get too political, I want to zoom out for a second. Matt, what other stories are people telling us about being out at work, like across the board? We've heard a lot of stories that really show that being out at work isn't as simple as just telling the people you work with and then that's it. A lot of people will do this thing where they'll wait and see if their coworkers seem like they'd be open and accepting before coming out to them. And sometimes people are out in one aspect of their queerness, say maybe their gender identity, but keep other things to themselves, like maybe the specifics of their sexuality. That makes sense. The other thing that really stood out is that like lots of bisexual people wrote in about feeling totally invisible, especially if they're like presently in opposite sex relationships. Because then people often just, like, assume they're straight, even if they aren't actually. But, like, bringing up being bi makes them feel like maybe they're inviting these, like, bi stereotypes they want to avoid. Like, being seen as promiscuous or, like, quote-unquote greedy. I just want to say, we see you, bi folks. We see you. Yes. So we are still collecting data and looking for stories from our listeners. You can take that survey over at nancypodcast.org slash work. If you've already taken it, thank you. Now maybe send it to a friend. We'll share the results in a couple of weeks. Also, important question. Have you two taken the survey yet? You know, I wasn't told it's to take been a busy the time. survey. I thought I would see the results. I have a results. lot on my There's plate. There's just a lot going on. We'll take it. I will it. take it right now. We'll take it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Bye, Matt. Thank you. We love you. Don't leave. I'm already gone. (laughs) So we've been listening through voice memos from folks who have sent in their stories of being out at work. I know. I love it so much. But we haven't talked about one of the biggest parts of work. Oh, what's that? Dollars, Tobin. Dollars, Uh, money. mm -hmm. And something we've seen very recently is that when states try to pass laws that take away rights from queer people, it can mean millions, even billions of dollars in consequences for local business. So, for instance, Indiana in 2015 passed uh, a religious exemption law saying that private corporations could exempt themselves from federal regulations on the basis of religious belief. This is Rich Bellis. He's an associate editor at Fast Company. So under then-Governor Mike Pence, Indiana passed this law, and there was this big public outcry. It was actually only on the books for a matter of weeks, I think one to two weeks, before the pushback was so so powerful that the governor ended up signing sort of a revision to that law. But in that really brief period, there was subsequent research saying that the state already lost like $60 million, which is pretty significant, yeah. right? Wow. So a dozen businesses uh, more or less hold out 
just because the outcry was so strong at that period. Mm-hmm. More recently, uh, this past July, uh, when Texas was considering um, a trans bathroom bill, they were able to point not just to Indiana, but to North Carolina the year prior, which had a bathroom bill on the books for around a year, a little over a year. And in that period, they lost, uh, it was estimated around $630 million before it was repealed. Mm. So Texas businesses were able to say, hey, you know, this is going to be pretty significant for us. And they were able to sort of look at that data uh, from North Carolina and say, you know, forecasting this estimate forward, we're looking at $5.6 billion over 10 years. Um, So that was pretty significant. And, you know, ultimately, I think it was largely due to the business community in Texas that 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 measure kind of died. Yeah. Are you seeing companies become more involved with LGBT policy issues? I think there has been an uptick, yeah. And I think when same-sex marriage was legalized, that sort of telegraphed to the private sector, you know, pretty powerful message that, okay, here, this is the direction that public opinion is going. So as a result, companies kind of had to get involved and felt as though the risks of not getting involved were higher than otherwise. Because listen, I mean, you know, corporations, they're, they're around primarily, their main interests are, you know, to protect their bottom line and the interests of their shareholders, right? So I think it became politically acceptable to take a progressive stance on queer issues. Um, one interesting point of comparison is if you look back 20, 25 years, you know, when DOMA was signed, when um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was enforced. You didn't see this huge public outcry. You know, 20 years later, where the landscape has changed politically, I think it becomes more of a liability not to step into the fray on a lot of these yeah. these issues. Yeah. I'm curious what that actually looks like. Like, what does it actually mean for a company to have pro-LGBT policies? What's interesting is that it doesn't actually take a really outlandish, dramatic policies and creative thinking to sort of just be good on queer issues. Mm. Um, You know, on one hand, you just need sort of that basic uh, non-discrimination language, right? We're an equal opportunity employer, and that includes gender identity and sexual orientation, right? You also have other things too, like, you know, does our health package include uh, coverage for the medical costs associated with transitioning? Yep. Um, And then there are some other little things too, like policies against, you know, the corporation contributing to charities that discriminate. Uh, So these are all things that kind of go into like a a queer-friendly package um, Mm -hmm. for for companies that are interested in this. Mm. I was speaking to somebody uh, recently who is the head of an advocacy organization on LGBT workplace issues. And, you know, by her research anyway, she was saying, you know, in 1996, 4% of the Fortune 500 um, had, you know, some sort of basic language regarding sort of HR issues and and non-discrimination in their internal policies. And now that ratio has flipped. It was 20 years later, by 2016, you have 96% of the Fortune 500. So there really aren't one or two standouts. And and that's a pretty dramatic change in a, a fairly short period of time. Rich Bellis, associate editor at Fast Company. Thank you so much for coming on, Nancy. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I also just want to say you said the total queer package at one point, uh, referencing you a company, uh, and I was like, hallelujah. well. Please don't cut that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll blame my head. Don't you worry. Nancy, we'll be back in a minute. Tobin, I want to read you this passage from this personal essay. Mm -hmm. It's from an old issue of Essence magazine, and I can't get it out of my head. Okay. I fear in some that the monster of conformity will rear its angry head and devour me. But I'm weary of playing games and of hiding and being afraid. I refuse to be trapped in a half-life of worry and anxiety, wondering how to explain to others that my lover is a woman. 
That is very good. So good. So this is from an essay published in 1979, and it's called I Am a Lesbian, written by Shirley McRae. She's now the first lady of New York City and married to Mayor Bill de Blasio. But this essay is all about her experience falling in love with a woman in college and making the choice to come out so that other lesbian women of color could feel seen. The thing I love about it is that in a lot of ways, it feels like it could have been written today. Totally. It's totally Mm -hmm. still relevant today. And it's so interesting that this was published when she was 24. And then later, she fell in love with and married a man. This is something that she talked about very candidly during Bill de Blasio's campaign in 2013, when the article resurfaced. And at the time, she's quoted as saying, I am more than just a label. So good. So good. So good. So we got to go uptown recently to Gracie Mansion, where she lives, to talk all about that. And also the work that she's doing with LGBT kids in New York City right now. Gracie Mansion, really beautiful. And we got to record in a room with a baseball that was signed by Joe DiMaggio. (laughs) That's what you're going to call out right now? The Joe DiMaggio room. Okay, that's not what it's called, folks. Not what it's called. I just want the chance to say, First Lady of New York City, Shirlene McRae, thank you for having us. I know. Thank you so much for having us. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me to talk with you. (laughs) We can just keep doing this for like a minute. Yes, We'll just thank you forever. (laughs) No, it's you. (laughs) So during your husband Bill de Blasio's 2013 campaign for mayor, this essay you wrote for Essence resurfaced, and we love the essay. We just read, read it essay. recently because oh, thank it's, you. it's so relevant even, even, even now. now. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was it like to revisit that essay like decades after you published it? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, it's always hard to read your own writing just because. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, mm-hmm. did I really say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did I really use that word and that name? And so it, it was a little painful, to tell you the truth. Uh-huh. But I, you know, it really brought me back to how, how great the need was. You know, um, first of all, for Essence to publish a piece like that was groundbreaking. Right. I mean, it had, had never been done. Um, there was a lot of talk you know, among themselves, the editors, about whether they should do it or not and whether it was relevant to their readership. And then, you know, should I publish my own name or not? I mean, it was, uh, it was a very big deal. Yeah. And, I'm, and I, I did show the piece to uh, people like Barbara Smith and Audre Lorde and you know, my mentors to get their feedback on it. And um, first of all, uh, black lesbians were like invisible, just totally Invisible. Even though we, you know, we honor people like like Audrey now, I mean, it was within mm-hmm. a very small community of people um, back then, and she was nowhere to be seen and on a larger scene. And and um, I just thought, you know, where are our voices? It, it changes the world when you see someone who steps up and becomes visible and is strong and 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 doing well. Uh, it just opens up a world of possibilities, and and our, our young people like didn't have that, and I said, well, why can't I be one of those people who really opens a door for others? Yeah, yeah, and like taking up space. Yeah, because I feel like sometimes we don't get that opportunity to just be ourselves and take up space. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I personally need time to recover from you just dropping that Audrey Lord was your mentor. <laughs> Uh, well so i was wondering so this is just a thing i'm personally curious about 
in the essay we were talking about with Essence, you came out very proudly as a lesbian. And in more recent interviews, you sort of have evolved to say that you're not really into labels. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your journey from, you know, how you've come to understand yourself. Well, let's just say I've come to understand myself. And <laughs> That's a great answer. And when when um when when Bill my when my husband was campaigning for mayor, of course, um, you know, not not uh, all members of the media are as understanding or well intended as, mm-hmm. as people like you. And I thought that um, it was it was important for them to know that that um, how to put this that I think I actually use this as I said you know labels put people in boxes and boxes are like coffins right you mm. like there's no you can't move right I, and I believe people can grow and change and that's very hard for people to understand. Uh, and so it was, yeah, I have shied away from labels. I think it's, it's constraining. Hmm. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting because I feel myself going back and forth where sometimes labels are really helpful mm-hmm. and then sometimes they're, I don't know, have you, have you found, especially with, I feel like, not to label us, but millennials. <laughs> Let's just name it millennials. <laughs> Fine. Who are sometimes all about the label. Um, how do you sort of broach that conversation? Well, I think, you know, part of the, the good part of labels, I mean, the positive part is like it helps you find community, right? It's like when you're looking for mm. people who mm-hmm. think like you, who look at the world in a similar way, that it, you know, they're helpful, without a doubt. Um, you know, I'm a little bit older, so <laughs> I was a little puzzled when it became, well, it went from, from gay to then lesbian gay to then LGBTQ, now I and A, and I'm like, wait a minute, what are we doing here? You know? <laughs> yeah. Why don't we just, like, use people's names? <laughs> right? yeah. But there is something to naming something or someone in terms of becoming visible, right? If you don't have, if you don't name something, it's almost like it doesn't exist. And that has been such an important part of this movement to become visible, become understood. And, and so I, I understand it. I just don't want to be constrained by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fair. Get that. Yeah, get that. <laughs> uh, well, so... We're going to talk about this new uh, initiative for LGBT youth in the city. It's called the Unity Project. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you've written so beautifully before about your experience growing up as a young black woman and the experience of coming out to your father. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could connect the dots for your personal experience to this project. Well, although our world has changed dramatically (laughs) from... You know, when I was a young person in the, in the 70s and, and, and coming out, it, there's still, it, it's tough. It's really tough. And I know from my personal experience, um, you know, of young people who didn't make it, right? Um, and, and, they, and it could have been prevented. And I think that we have a moral obligation to make 
things better. We want all of our young people to thrive in New York City, and, and we have the tools to do that, mm -hmm. and, and, and we should. We should just do that. And I, I have a platform, so I am going to use it you know, as, as much as I can to the best of my ability because I've walked in those shoes. I haven't walked in everybody's shoes, but I walked in, you know, I, had, I remember my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm a good listener, so I'm hoping that I can, can just make the world a little better place for our young people. Yeah. One of the things that we're focusing on this season is employment and how people navigate being out at work. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, uh, how is the Unity Project going to help young LGBT New Yorkers work, get to work, find work, all the above? Well, you know, there's no silver bullet. There's so many pieces <laughs> to that. I mean, one of the things that we want to do is, is, is just expose you know, LGBTQ young people to the different kinds of jobs they can have. Um, we had a job fair for our transgender population. That's something we're looking to repeat. And we're even creating a manual for employers about um, how to be culturally sensitive, how to be, um, how to make your workplace welcoming and warm for, for people who have, um, for, for the LGBTQ community. I think it's up to us in government to to smooth those connections and make the help make those pathways so that it's not so awkward, um, and so that these jobs are more accessible and, and more young people know about them. I'm wondering if you've ever had the experience of being in a workplace that wasn't accepting. Well, well, I've I've had uh, I've had a mix of experiences. I certainly had the experience of being just totally in the closet, right? It was like. I mean, in the 70s, like early 80s, like forget it. It was not even something that I would consider broaching. Um, I kind of lived in two different worlds, right? And then later on, you know, when people became more accepting, there was the, well, you know, it's, you could talk to some people about this, but you're not going to maybe talk to your boss or talk to, or, you, you know, you're not going to bring your girlfriend to the social uh, gathering <laughs> at the end of the year, the Christmas party or whatever it is. You know, there, it's, it's kind of, things have changed over the years. Society has changed tremendously, but, but not enough. <laughs> uh, New York is kind of an outlier in that it's a, it's a little more of a liberal place, I think it's safe oh, to yes. say. <laughs> yes, a yeah. lot more, a little more, a lot more. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, like, there is something about, like, maybe that this is a friendlier city to launch something like this project. Um, and I'm wondering what you feel other cities could learn from New York sort of kicking this off. Mm -hmm. Well, New York is, is just, I mean, this is the birthplace of the LGBTQ movement. I mean, we're, and we're a haven for so many uh, young people, old people, everybody, right? Um, and I, I think we... We're hoping that with this blueprint that we have a, a document, a plan, a strategy that, that other cities can, can model their own efforts on. They can take pieces of it, whether it's the employment piece or the piece where we're, we're training uh, 500 physicians by the end of next summer to be culturally uh, competent with uh, the whole you know, LGBTQ community. That's like so important. Um, anyone can do this. Um, it really requires uh, just having the will. And, and uh, with the blueprint, we show them the way. <laughs> Thank you. 
Shirlane McRae is the First Lady of New York City, and the initiative we talked about is called the Unity Project, aimed specifically at helping queer youth in the city. You can also see us hanging out at Gracie Mansion at nancypodcast.org. It's credits time. Social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Nancy Podcast, all those places. And if you want to contribute to our At I Work project, please go to nancypodcast.org slash work. Okay. Producer. Matt Collette. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Jenny Lawton. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. Special thanks this week to Matt Boynton. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Too. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. Should we do that one more time just in case? Just in case, but I thought that was a good take. Yeah? It felt good. It felt like it was grooving, you know? Just one more. Let's Let's make magic again, okay? Let's just make magic again. Okay. Okay. I hate us. That should be the kicker. I hate us so much. (laughs) I hate us.